Hello, Democrats of Greater Tucson. I'm Charlie, the Secretary of DGT. On today's podcast, we have Rex Scott, a candidate for the Pima County Board of Supervisors, who joined us at our meeting on February 24th. If you would like to attend one of our meetings, see our speakers in person, and ask them questions, you can join us at Kettle Restaurant at 22nd and I-10 almost every Monday at noon. You can also see a schedule of our upcoming speakers at our website, thedgt.org. That's T-H-E-D-G-T dot O-R-G. You can support Democrats of Greater Tucson by becoming a member of our organization. Membership is just $20 for the year. You can join us either by signing up on our website or by attending one of our meetings in person. Your support allows us to continue being a platform for Democratic candidates and causes. Rex Scott was first elected to his city council while in college in his hometown of Athens, Ohio. And while he was elected as a Republican, his values at the time do not reflect the values of the Republican Party today. Rex switched over to the Democratic Party 20 years ago, sometime after moving to Tucson back in 1991. Here is Rex. All right. Is this mic working okay? Wonderful, wonderful. And and having been uh, doing what I've been doing uh, for the last 20 years, uh, which is serving as either a principal or an assistant principal, at middle and high schools. I don't usually have a problem with my, my voice being heard. Uh, in fact, I was telling Larry, uh, Kathy, I've not been a member of DGT before. Hold on. Larry said to put this as high as I could, but I'm feeling I'm blasting you out. Is that better? All right. Okay. Uh, I've not been a member of DGT before because usually at this time of day, yes, I'm in a lunchroom. <laughs> But it's not one like this. It's not one like this. So I'm really happy to be here with all of you today. And before I uh, get into a little bit about myself, I want to introduce our our campaign manager, Robert Contreras. Uh, He's there in the green shirt. Say hey to Robert. Uh, You got more than one clap, man. I do. And although I am hoping to be county supervisor Rex Scott, I already have the two most important titles uh, that I will ever have. Uh, The first one is I am Terry's husband. Uh, My wife, Terry, and I have been married for a little over 25 years, uh, and she is currently at a school. She's a second grade teacher at Centennial Elementary in the Flowing Wells District. And then the second most important title that I have is I am Caitlin and Trent's dad. Uh, Terry and I are are blessed to be the parents of 24-year-old twins, and they will turn 25 on St. Patrick's Day. And then people always ask us, well, why didn't you name them Patrick and Patricia? Well, because I want them to still be talking to me. And I don't want them to put me in a home when I'm at, when I'm at a certain age. So Caitlin and Trent. And, and Caitlin, uh, like her parents, is going into education. She was just hired uh, to teach first grade next year. Yes, she was, Lucy. Uh, she's going to be teaching first grade at one of the elementaries in the Marana district. Uh, I come out of an educational background. My father was a journalism professor at Ohio University, my alma mater, uh, and then he retired from the University of Missouri. Uh, Just to tell you a little bit about my background, and I appreciated Sandy doing some uh, research on me. Uh, I am from, originally from Athens, Ohio, 
Uh, we moved there right before I started fourth grade, and I went to college there. I have two degrees from Ohio University, one in political science and one in education. And when I was pursuing that second degree in education, I was the elected to the Athens City Council. I was the first Ohio University student ever elected to city council in Athens, and that's a, a pretty substantial accomplishment because Ohio University is the first university west of the Appalachian Mountains. Uh, it was established in 1804, and uh, I was the youngest person and the first Ohio University student elected. It's a rather humbling experience to be a member of city council where all the other members are old enough to be your, your parents or, or grandparents. In fact, my dad's boss, the dean of the College of Communications, was, uh, was one of the council members. I uh, moved here in 1991. Uh, I followed a girl out here. No, it wasn't Terry. Uh, but, if it, <laughs> but if it weren't for that girl, I wouldn't have met Terry. And uh, I had to resign my city council seat, of course, to, to move out here. And since 1991, I have been either a teacher or an administrator in middle and high schools throughout Pima County. I was a teacher in both Flowing Wells and TUSD, and I was an administrator in TUSD, Amphi, and Marana. And as I said, I've always worked in middle and high schools, and, and some of you who uh, uh, have heard me at other events have already heard this joke, but I figured after close to 30 years of dealing with adolescent behavior, that was excellent preparation for politics. <laughs> Maybe especially in Arizona. <laughs> now, why am I running for, for county supervisor? Well, it really, the, the chief reason to run for any office is to hopefully do as much good as you possibly can for the people that you hope to represent. And for myself, it's also a way of continuing what has been a lifelong commitment to public service, dating back to those years on city council when I was a college student, and then all of the years that I've been a, a teacher and an administrator in, in Pima County Public Schools. And when you learn the needs of a community through working on behalf of its children, it gives you a really strong sense of what those needs are. And one of the greatest wishes of anybody who works in public education and, and anyone who's a parent uh, is that their children will want to stay here when they graduate from high school. But if we want kids to stay in Pima County, uh, there needs to be an economic climate uh, that provides the kind of uh, successful jobs that are going to make them feel like they can have a, a life and a career here. And we need the quality of life that is going to make them want to raise their own families here. Roads, parks, safety, uh, a, a clean environment, and the Board of Supervisors, uh, because it oversees all of the operations of county government, can have a great effect on, on economic climate and also on infrastructure. Uh, and since I have lived here, I've heard two prevailing views of, of county government. Either people are not really sure what the county does and how it impacts their daily lives, or what they are aware that the county does, they're not really happy about. And that shouldn't be the case, because we spend a great deal of time thinking about, worrying about, talking about 
what's going on in Phoenix and what's going on in Washington. But if you think about it, it's local government. It's local government that has the greatest effect on our daily lives. And in every leadership position that I've been in, I've always tried to make sure that the families and, and students that we serve have a strong understanding of all the supports and services that we provide to them, and that all those services and supports are provided at the highest level of customer service and, and efficiency. Uh, you will hear me say throughout this campaign that there's three adjectives that I've always most want applied to me as a leader. Uh, to be communicative, to be visible, and to be supportive. And just to tell you how important I think it is for me to be held accountable for being the same kind of person that in office that I said I was going to be during the campaign. For the last five years, I've been the principal at a middle school in the Marana district. And at the beginning of every school year, I gave my staff a copy of the cover letter that I used when I applied for the position. Why did I give that to them at the beginning of every year? because I wanted them to hold me accountable for being the same person as their principal that I said I was going to be when I asked to be their principal. And I wanted them to have that annual reminder of the person I said I was going to be, and I wanted them to hold, I wanted them to hold me accountable for being that guy uh, as their principal. That's what I ask all of you to do as voters and citizens of Pima County, is listen to the commitments that I make during this campaign, and then if I'm blessed to be elected, hold me accountable for being that same person uh, as the District 1 County Supervisor. Now, if you look at, uh, I wouldn't be a good educator if I didn't have uh, uh, visual aids. Uh, if, if you look at your seats, each one of you has a, a palm card. And on the back of that palm card, uh, you will see some of the issues that I've identified as uh, really high priorities in this campaign uh, and if I'm elected to be the District 1 County Supervisor. And by the way, just to share the boundaries of, of District 1 with you, it's, it's pretty much everything north of River Road. Uh, on the western boundary is I-10, the eastern boundary is Catalina Highway, uh, up to the Pinal County line. That's District 1. Uh, in terms of registered voters, it is the most populous district in the county. There are roughly 142,000 registered voters in District 1. Uh, and the, I'll give you the breakdown by party, and then we'll talk a little bit more about that later. There are roughly 54,000 Republicans, uh, for approximately 46,000 Democrats, and 41,000 Independents. And we'll get more into uh, the importance of those numbers late, later in my presentation. But I wrote down that uh, fostering economic development and business expansion is, is a high priority for me as your next county supervisor. And I've learned, I've learned that when employers are looking to either expand or, or come to a place, their chief concern is talent. Is there an available pool of high quality, talent available to work uh, at, at, in that business. Uh, and that's why we have to continue uh, to work to strengthen K-12 and higher education in this area. Raytheon just announced that they were going to expand uh, their, their business uh, here in Tucson. 
And the chief reason that they did is because the University of Arizona graduates a high number of engineering graduates. So talent, uh, and that talent comes mostly from education, is the chief concern for any prospective employer. But infrastructure and quality of life, uh, you, you are not going to want to expand a business or bring a business here if the people who work for you uh, can't send their kids to high-quality schools, can't drive on roads that are well-maintained, don't have uh, proper law enforcement and public, service, uh, public safety, uh, don't have uh, parks and libraries and all of the other things that lend to our quality of life. Uh, and we also need to take a really hard look at the Department of Development Services. If you are somebody who owns or wants to expand a business in Pima County, the department that you're most likely to work with is Development Services, and that needs to be a department that is responsive and informative and supportive uh, to everybody in the private sector. The second bullet says fix and maintain county roads and infrastructure. Now, I don't know how many of you know this, 70%, seven out of 10, of all of our roads in Pima County are in poor condition, 70%. And the county uh, uses an acronym uh, called PCI, Pavement Condition Index, to determine that. And I found out the way that they determined the Pavement Condition Index on all of the county roads was they hired a company that had a high-tech van, and that van drove every road in the county to come up with this pavement condition index. Uh, and it was based on, based on that inventory of our roads and the fact that seven out of every 10 are in poor condition that the current board of supervisors decided to pass, and they did pass unanimously, a program called PAYGO, uh, pay as you go, that is supposed to bring all of our roads up to good condition by 2030. Uh, that's, and one of the reasons that the county went for that proposal is because the last few bond issues uh, that the county has tried to pass uh, to make the same road improvements have been rejected by the voters. So they're now using, uh, they're now using a reduction in the secondary property tax because as we start to pay down uh, more of the 1997 road bonds. They're reducing uh, the amount of secondary tax that goes towards paying those bonds and they're putting it into the uh, uh, upgrade of, of these roads. Uh, they're also using the, the other means that we have to, to pay for road construction, mostly the highway user revenue funds that, that come to us from the state. And they're also taking a certain percentage of general fund money monies between now and 2030 to get us to this point. But the important role of the Board of Supervisors with this PAYGO program is that it has to be annually reviewed, has to be annually reviewed, and it will be on an annual basis that the Board of Supervisors decide, is deciding uh, which roads need to be targeted in that particular budgetary year. It'll also be a chief responsibility of the Board of Supervisors to make sure that preventive maintenance 
is an important component of this pay-go program because we don't want these roads to, uh, we don't want to get to 2030 and have upgraded all the roads but don't have a, a plan in place of preventive, preventive maintenance to make sure that they don't fall back into disrepair. Uh, supporting law enforcement and first responders, a significant part of the county budget goes towards uh, the sheriff's department. And one of the functions of the Board of Supervisors is to approve the budget of every department, not just the departments run by appointed administrators like the Parks Department or the Transportation Department, but the sheriff is independently elected, but his budget is approved by uh, the Board of Supervisors. And we want to look at uh, adequate staffing, response time, especially uh, in, in rural areas. And I think it's very important I always said as an administrator, as a school leader, that I wanted to hear from the people who had to implement a decision uh, before I made a decision on their behalf. So I think it's always very important, uh, to, especially with law enforcement, to hear from the people out in the field uh, in terms of their needs uh, as far as staffing and, and funding goes. The fourth one, and I think I can speak to this with a great deal of experience and credibility, is advocate for quality early childhood education for all of our children, regardless of family income. Regardless of family income. The county is currently uh, looking at expanding its role in providing quality early childhood education to uh, three and four year olds throughout the county who need it. Uh, there's uh, the, the current board of supervisors and county administrator are working with a local group called the Preschool Promise uh, to start with a pilot group of right around a thousand kids uh, over the next three years uh, to make quality early childhood education available to them. Uh, any child who has high quality preschool, we're not talking about childcare, we're talking about high quality preschool when they are uh, three and four years old they are less likely to need special education services. They are less likely to be a discipline problem uh, once they get into the K-12 system. They're more likely to be reading at grade level, especially at uh, third grade, where we um, make that measurement in the state of Arizona. They're more likely to be reading at grade level, and they are more likely, crucially, to graduate on time. Uh, and we've had cities and counties around the, the country uh, who've made an investment in quality early childhood education. If you want to go on the Arizona Daily Star's website and read uh, some of the investigative articles that Sarah Garrett, Garrett Gasson has done on that subject, you'll find it very illuminating. And when government comes to the table and agrees to play a role in this, they bring in other partners. They bring in the school districts. They bring in the nonprofit foundations and other people who care about the well-being of children in our community. And I think my experience as an educator of, of close to 30 years uh, gives me both the knowledge and the credibility to help move this issue forward at the county level. Uh, prioritizing customer service and efficient operations, that really is the most important function of county government. I was speaking to some government classes at a, at a local high school last week, and I said, you know, a lot of the work of, of local government is not really sexy or glamorous. It's making sure that all of the essential county services are provided at the highest level 
of customer service and efficiency. In other words, wise use of, of your tax dollars. And the county, by the way, sets, the county board of supervisors sets the tax rate for the primary and secondary property tax and also the property taxes that fund the library district and the flood control district. Uh, we need to ensure that not only are your tax dollars spent wisely, uh, but that every department operates at the highest level of efficiency and customer service. That's a function of leadership and it's a function of the board of supervisors to exercise that leadership. Working with other jurisdictions to increase the stock of affordable housing. According to the National Association of Counties, and this is a rather stunning statistic, over one third of all American families are burdened by housing costs, over one third, meaning that they spend more than 30% of their income on housing costs. If you look at the 2019 report from uh, the National Low Income Housing Coalition, a full-time worker needs to earn an hourly wage of $22.96 on average to afford a modest two-bedroom rental home in the United States. This housing wage for a two-bedroom home is $15.71 higher than the federal minimum wage of $7.25 and $5.39 higher than the national average hourly wage earned by renters which is $17.57. You can see uh, this, is a, this is a crisis issue. In most areas of the United States, a family of four with poverty level income earns no more than $25,750 a year and can afford a monthly rent of no more than $644. The national average fair market rent for a one bedroom home is $970 per month and $1,194 per month for a two-bedroom home, far from affordable for a family in poverty. This same report says that in 99% of the counties in our country, a full-time minimum wage worker cannot afford a one-bedroom rental home at fair market needs, fair market rent. So what can counties do? Counties can work with other jurisdictions uh, towns and, and cities. Uh, they can work with uh, the federal government. Uh, they can work with nonprofits. In other words, they can collaborate with other concerned entities in the community to address this issue. And I've been looking at the affordable housing toolkit that's available from the National Association of Counties. And that is something that I want to work on with all other concerned uh, elected officials and people who care about the issue of housing in our community. Something that I have told people who want to go into school leadership uh, is that there is very little in a very complex organization like a school that's good or sustainable that is the work of one person, even if that person is the principal. Principals can screw things up all by themselves, and I probably have some instances of that in my career. But they rarely can do anything good or sustainable all by themselves. The same is true in uh, being an elected official. And when it comes to this issue of housing and ensuring that affordable housing is more available to people in Pima County, it is going to take a collaborative effort. And I'm going to uh, work with all concerned parties to move that forward. The last one says ensuring that our environment and natural resources are protected. Uh, we live 
uh, in one of the most beautiful but also fragile areas of the country. And the county has, uh, the county has a landmark uh, desert conservation plan uh, that helps to set a framework for responsible economic development. The, council all, the county also has a department of economic quality uh, that needs to ensure that there is responsible development uh, and that uh, all of our businesses and industries are following environmental regulations. Uh, I want to tell you, if I am, and, and this is uh, not just an economic development, uh, but I'll put that in quotes because I don't think it's sustainable economic development. It's also an environmental issue. If I am the Pima County Supervisor in District 1, unlike the incumbent and unlike the members of her party uh, who are seeking to succeed her, I will be irrevocably 100% opposed to the wrong-headed Rosemont Mine proposal. Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> and both, both Allie Miller and Steve Christie, the District 4 Supervisor, are in favor of the Rosemont Mine. And I intend to ask the four Republicans who are seeking the nomination uh, to succeed Supervisor Miller, I intend to ask all four of them uh, what their position is going to be on the Rosemont Mine. Will they join the three Democratic supervisors? Will they join former Republican Supervisor Ray Carroll in, in opposing the Rosemont Mine? Or are they going to be like Allie Miller and Steve Christie and, and uh, support uh, this mine that would not bring sustainable economic development and poses huge environmental risks, not only to the Santa Rita Mountains, but to our water table. That's gonna be a big issue for me. Uh, another document that you have at your table, because you know we're all Democrats, so let's talk about why we can win. Uh, that's this document. Have it in front of you if you could, please. Because of the hard work of people in this room, especially people who live in LD9 and LD11 and LD10, and there are parts of uh, uh, LD9, LD10, and LD11 in Supervisorial District 1, the margin between registered Democrats and registered Republicans in District 1 has narrowed by 40% since 2016. 40%. When, when our friend Brian Bickle was our nominee in 2016, the margin between registered Republicans and registered Democrats was 12,000. It's down to 8,000. It's down to 8,000. There is also a growing number of independents in the district. So with all of us energized to not only change the occupant of the White House, but also to take the United States Senate and hold the United States House. Democrats in District 1 and independents in District 1 and yes, persuadable Republicans in District 1 are going to help us to flip that district from red to blue for the first time since the late 1980s. Yeah. Uh, Name recognition is key to any political candidate. When I mentioned that I was a school administrator for 19 years, for 10 of those 19 years, I was an administrator in District 1. I was an assistant principal at Ironwood Ridge High School in the Amphi District for five years, 
and I was most recently the principal of Tortolita Middle School in the Miranda District also for five years. I have worked for those 10 years to build trust, to build rapport, to build positive relationships with thousands of families in District 1. And now that the incumbent has said that she is not running for re-election, uh, I feel that I have more name recognition in District 1 than any of the six people who are seeking this office. Uh, more than the four Republicans and more than the other Democrat who is seeking our party's, our party's nomination. Uh, as Sandy said when she introduced me, I was a Republican. Uh, I, when I registered to vote in 1981, when I turned 18, do the math and you can now tell how old I am. Uh, when, I, when I registered to vote in 1981, uh, I registered as a Republican. And I stayed a Republican uh, until the year 2000. Uh, and I've been a Democrat. Uh, actually, uh, I was an independent for four years, but I've been a Democrat since 2004. But as someone who has been a Republican and who has worked with diverse school communities around this county, I can say to the people of District 1 that I know that there are people of goodwill on both sides of the political divide who care about this county and, and want it to move forward. And I feel that I am best equipped to honor all voices and respect all points of view in an increasingly diverse district. Uh, let's talk about their primary. There are four Republicans who are running for the nomination in District 1. Three of them, three of them have been on a ballot before. The fourth one has never been on a ballot before, but he is endorsed by Supervisor Miller. Yes. And all four, all four of those people, certainly the gentleman endorsed by Supervisor Miller, but also the other three have a core group of supporters. And each one of them represents a different faction within the Republican Party. They are already throwing elbows at each other on, on social media and uh, on the radio. And it, they are going to have a bruising, bloodying primary. We aren't going to. Uh, Brian Radford, who's the other Democratic candidate, and I have had a, a wonderful conversation about how we're going to conduct ourselves moving forward uh, to the primary in August. You're not going to see those kind of antics from, from Brian and myself. But you are going to see a lot of it on the Republican side. And whoever emerges from that primary, I think, is going to have to say and do things that perhaps they're going to regret in a general election. And it's possible that... Uh, it's possible that the supporters of some of the losing candidates may sit that race out. I don't know that that means that they're going to vote for the Democrat, but it may mean that they leave that race blank, as they've been known to do before in other races in our, in our state and, and uh, local area. I have a diverse group of supporters. If you look at the back of the palm card, uh, you can see all of the leaders within our party and within our community who have endorsed me. And I am proud to tell you this. Uh, every name on here, every person on this poem card who's endorsed me is not just someone who I said, hey, I'm running for office, uh, will you back me? Uh, and uh, because I think we're in agreement most of the time, everybody on here I've known at least 10 years, and some of them more than 20. Some of them more than 20, like uh, uh, Dr. Petticone and Dr. McCorkle, uh, who I worked with when I was still in the classroom. Uh, I'm going to be able to bring our party together 
uh, in a way that I don't believe that the Republican nominee, whoever they are, will be able to do. Uh, I'm prepared for this office. School leaders are responsible for providing uh, supports and services to a very diverse group of students and their families. And they are responsible for overseeing their staff in, in providing for those services and supports. That's what county supervisors do. I can also point to my three and a half years of service as a local official uh, in, in my hometown in Ohio. And then the last uh, bullet point you'll see is that we've got a very aggressive ground game. Our field plan uh, targets uh, Democrats, independents, persuadable Republicans, especially in the attendance areas of the two schools that I've represented as a leader. And we're going to be able to bring the coalition that's going to win, bring together the coalition that's going to win this campaign in, uh, in November. So I see Larry standing up, which means that it's time for questions, but let me just really quickly share this history lesson with you uh, that will tell you not only the name of the last person who was a Democratic supervisor in District 1, uh, but also uh, his campaign slogan, and I've used his campaign slogan to craft one uh, for you today. The last Democrat to hold this office was Ron Asta. Oh, yeah. Yep. And, and if you were, now I wasn't living in Pima County when, when Supervisor Asta was in office. I actually met him because his grandson uh, was a student at Doolin Middle School when I was an assistant principal there. And he came, Ron came to every, his son was a big athlete, and Ron came to every game his uh, grandson uh, was ever in. And at one of those uh, uh, events, he shared his campaign slogan with me. It has to be Asta. <laughs> That's a great slogan, isn't it? So, it is. It is. So I was thinking, I was thinking if back in the 80s we had a supervisor uh, and his slogan was, it has to be Asta. In 2020, it's got to be Scotty. <laughs> And now I will take your questions. Fantastic. Thanks very much. All right. By the way, I overlooked uh, one of our distinguished uh, attendees in the announcements. Carolyn Klassen, why don't you stand up? Hi, everybody. As I work with Larry at Blog for Arizona, and I mostly do the calendar. And I want to tell you folks, since Donald Trump was elected, the calendar has like increased about three times in the resistance wow. movement against him. So go to our calendar, because I update it all the time. Thank you, bye-bye. All right, thank you. So what questions do we have? Tony, get us started here. So Rex, uh, one issue, I didn't hear you uh, go on. I'm sorry if I came in a little late, but did you, I didn't hear you mention anything about gun violence prevention. Uh, you know, it's an important issue for a lot of us here. Uh, you know, Larry and I have been working with a group called uh, Citizens for Safer Pima County to get rid of gun sales at the fair. As you may know, anybody can walk into the fair without any ID and buy a gun with no background check. And this is county-owned property that we own, so it shouldn't be happening. Uh, we have been working with the supervisors. We've got to do a resolution for universal background checks, but 
the people that would decide this are the Pima County Fair Commission, who seems, as lawyer wrote very eloquently yesterday, seems to be this uh, secret cabal that nobody seems to be able to know who they are, how we can contact them. So what are you going to do about that? Well, I was really proud uh, to be at the uh, rally that we had right before uh, the supervisors meeting when they passed the resolution calling on the United States Congress uh, to pass universal background checks. Uh, I was there along with uh, Ron Barber uh, and Stephanie Stahl-Hamilton, who's, who's running for the House in District 10. And what I don't understand is I recognize that we're not, that gun sellers aren't required to, uh, private gun sellers are not required to uh, conduct background checks as a matter of federal law. That's what the gun show loophole is. What I don't understand is until that federal law is changed, how can we possibly be okay with public property being used to conduct private gun sales? And what I also don't understand, and Larry and I have talked about this, is I get that Arizona state law says that the county can't have tougher laws than are already in place. You know, it's funny how a party like the Republican Party that supposedly stands for local control uh, is uh, um, always trying to tell local governments uh, what they can and cannot do. Uh, we, but as long as that's the case, as long as that's the case, uh, why are we in violation of that state law if we say, if the Fair Commission says, okay, well, as long as there's the gun show loophole, we are only going to allow uh, federally licensed gun dealers at our shows. Why can't we do that? Uh, I know that the county attorney uh, feels that if we said that, that we would be implicitly uh, violating state law. Well, how do we know that until we try? How do we know that until we try? And yes, the members of the Southwest Fair Commission are uh, independent, but my understanding is they're appointed uh, by the by the Board of Supervisors. Uh, I think we need to be bolder on this front. I appreciate the leadership of the of the three Democrats on the board who have voted to pass that resolution, but I think we need to be bolder. The, the resolution calling for the federal government. Uh, to uh, have universal background checks, which are supported by a vast majority of Americans, including the majority of NRA members, by the way. Uh, but I think we need to be bolder as a county in terms of challenging state law. And that's something I would push for, Tony, if I was elected. You bet. Hi. Um, I wonder if you could expand a little bit more on your last bullet there about the environment, I mean, yes. what you said was really important and especially Rosemont, but more broadly, if you could talk some specifics about what you would do or what you would like to see happening to protect our fragile and beautiful environment that you mentioned. I think that it's very important that the uh, County Department of Environmental Quality have the staffing and resources uh, to do the regulatory work that it needs to do. I also think that it's uh, crucially important as we are working with private sector partners 
uh, to attract more business and economic development to Pima County, uh, that it be sustainable economic development that is uh, aligned with the environmental goals that we have for our, for our fragile desert ecosystem. So those would be two very, uh, uh, two very broad points that I would make uh, in, in answer to your question. Thank you. You mentioned the housing costs, which is fascinating as a percentage of income. If you take the property tax rate and put it with how much impact fee goes on each house, how much do you have to earn in a year just to pay that before you get to the cost of the house? And because we are, and I'm not advocating for this. So when I'm answering this this way, please don't think that I'm advocating for a sales tax. But because we are the only one of the Arizona counties that doesn't have uh, a sales tax of any kind, and Maricopa County, for example, has uh, multiple sales taxes, uh, each one of them for a designated purpose, uh, we do rely uh, excessively on the property tax. And it's not just the county. Uh, in terms of the, the primary, secondary, library district, and flood control taxes that they control. It's also Pima Community College and the school districts and the fire districts that, uh, that, that you see listed on, on your property tax bill. So one of the goals of the, of the PAYGO system uh, that I was talking about earlier is not only to use that reduction in the secondary tax to take that, that, that has been used to pay pay down the 1997 bonds to use those revenues to uh, help to improve our roads uh, a parallel goal of the paygo prog uh, program is to also continually reduce the primary property tax rate it is Yes, it's a, that now the issue though, the issue though for people who are continuing to uh, see their property tax bill higher is not the, necessarily the rate uh, set, it's the valuation, it's the valuation of our homes. Uh, and that, that I think is the, the larger issue uh, in terms of the uh, increasing property tax burden. Lucy. Rex, when you talked about the um, preschool promise, yes, um, I know that it's changed just a little bit from the initial one that they tried to do in Tucson. Right. Okay, so this one, is it specific scholarships for lower, lower socioeconomic children, or is it anyone? It's, uh, it's part, the, the initial program, uh, as I understand it, is targeting a pilot group <laughs> of three and four year olds for whom family income is a barrier uh, to having access to quality early childhood education. Any other questions? Hello Rex, my name's Ray. Uh, so I'm a veteran, so I definitely support you know service members. Uh, but I just had a question about, you know, supporting law enforcement and first responders. Um, you know, it's a contentious debate. We see it on the presidential stage with 
Bloomberg being criticized for stop and frisk while he was mayor of New York. Uh, I just want to hear your position. Um, you know, there is institutional racism and personal bias. And being in Southern Arizona, you know, there are targeted demographics. I just want to hear your position on trying to combat that as supervisor. Well, let me answer that in two ways. <clears throat> because unlike uh, people who've uh, held elected office in this area, I don't have a, a, a record as an Arizona official that I can point to. But I can point to the fact that I've been a public school leader uh, for the last 19 years and was a teacher for 10 years before that. And every school governing board, every school governing board has uh, non-discrimination policies that you are obliged to enforce, especially if uh, you're a leader on a campus. Uh, you have to ensure that no student is discriminated against based on race, religion, handicap, uh, gender identification, so, uh, sexual orientation, you name it. But the other thing that I will tell you is that when I was a member of Athens City Council, now this was back in the 80s, the late 80s, uh, I co-sponsored uh, as a 25-year-old councilman, as a Republican, an ordinance that added sexual orientation to our city's anti-discrimination ordinance. We already had a great many groups that were protected under the anti-discrimination ordinance and it covered housing, employment, and public accommodations. And we, we as a council passed uh, this measure, which I co-sponsored. It was vetoed by our Democratic mayor. We overrode her veto. We overrode her veto. And what I was, what I didn't know at the time, uh, as an irony, and I found out after I moved here, when we were looking at model ordinances, one of the ordinances that we looked at was from the city of Tucson, uh, which had put those protections in place uh, in, I think, the early to mid-1980s. So I have a history as an educator of fighting on behalf of every child, uh, regardless of not just who they are, but what they are. Uh, and I have that history uh, the last time I was an elected official. I hope that answers your question. Rex. Carolyn. Yes, on Saturday, some of us were at that backpack full of cash showing yes. at Pima Dems. What's your position about the charter schools in District 1? Well, I gotta tell you, uh, Arizona, for years, has been one of the worst states in terms of providing effective oversight and accountability to charter schools. The, the charter school movement, the charter school movement, uh, one of the states where it, where it really uh, started early and, and had a groundswell of support was Arizona. It really wasn't until uh, recent history that you even had to have a business plan if you, if you wanted to have a charter. And the state board that oversees charter schools, uh, it, it rarely has the resources that it needs to do its job. And uh, the people on that board are, are usually folks who are not really that interested in, in charter school accountability. We also have members of the Arizona legislature 
<laughs> who have made quite a pretty penny. Uh, you know, <clears throat> when I think about the millions of dollars that have gone to charter schools uh, since they became so popular in our state, and that really was around the time that I that I moved here because I moved here in 1991, and the charter school movement really took off in the in the 90s. And I think of where that money could have been spent in traditional public schools, in our K-12 districts, it's, it's amazing. And when I think of the number of disreputable charters that have already gone under, and I will tell you this, as somebody who was once the principal of an inner city traditional K-12 high school, the sheer number of times that one of those snake oil salesmen at a charter school enticed one of our kids away, and then they were back within uh, one or two weeks, <laughs> figuring out that the, the snake oil was not uh, what, it, what it had been sold to be. I, I, I have a very dubious view. I have a very dubious view of, uh, of, of charter schools. I, there are some that are doing a great job. And if there is one thing where I think we can be held critical as K-12 educators is that for too long, maybe including when all of us were in school, we took kind of a cookie cutter, one size fits all approach to kids. And a lot of times charter schools originally surfaced to be of service to a particular niche of, of the learner population. Now, I think K-12 districts are better at meeting the needs of every child now than we used to be. Uh, and I think to a certain extent, charter schools have helped us to do that. But uh, there needs to be a lot more oversight and accountability for charter schools, uh, especially, especially in the state of Arizona. All right, thank you, Rex. That wraps up. Big round of applause for Rex That's all for today's DGT podcast. Next week, our guest will be Bill Mundell, a candidate for the Arizona Corporation Commission. Remember that we may not always be able to record our meetings, so if you absolutely don't want to miss it, you can attend our meetings in person at Kettle Restaurant at noon. Finally, here's one last reminder that you can support us by becoming a member of Democrats of Greater Tucson by going to our website. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.